I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. Everyone knows that High Speed 2 is a project of superlatives. Over 200 miles of track when all phases are complete. Trains carrying hundreds of thousands of passengers every day. Some tens of billions of investment. But what we might not know is how much work needs to be done before the phase known as main construction. The workforce does not just show up at these sites and just start laying track. These enabling works cover everything that needs to be done before building the stations, bridges, tunnels and track that make up the main project. This means, for example, the archaeological program and the ecological studies and the other impact assessments for HS2's Green Corridor, but also everything to do with site investigations, work permissions, stakeholder engagement, land clearance, decommissioning, demolitions, ground treatment, roadworks, bridge strengthening, utility diversion, habitat protection, tree planting... And carrying out this work is a mega project in itself. And in this episode, we will look at developing the ground investigation program. We'll look at demolitions. We will look at utility diversions. And we will look at provisioning power to feed the project's future tunneling operations. And all that will just be scratching the surface, excuse the pun, as we learn about how HS2 went about preparing the ground. When I started HS2, there was a team of one. <laughs> there was just me. Peter Lynch was my uh, boss at the time, uh, and he was fantastic. He was really encouraging, really good. But after a few days where I kind of settled in um, and we were looking at various documents that needed to be produced, he said, well, what we really need is a team. This is Jonathan Gammon, currently working for Geotechnical Observations Limited. But back in 2014, he was tasked with designing a ground investigation program for High Speed 2, phase one of HS2, the section of the railway that will run from London to Birmingham. And if you were wondering what the second most extensive program is, well, that would be phase two. By an extraordinary stroke of luck, and this is the only time it's happened in my career, a group of engineers with various different backgrounds had come off the Northern Line Extension project, which had essentially come to an end in terms of their involvement, and I think they were very much wondering what to do. He met with the head of the geotechnical side of engineering firm CH2M at 7am on a Friday morning, and by lunchtime he had decided on a team structure. That team of 14 stayed in place uh, until towards the end of the year, where, much to my delight, uh, because we didn't expect this, we were asked to continue in that role and move on from doing the design of the ground investigation through to its implementation. Mega projects tend to face enormous delays if tasks on the critical path to construction are slow. Now, Jonathan knew that he was embarking on the largest ground investigation program in British history, and so he needed to get moving. At that time, uh, when we're talking February, March 2014, there was a pretty firm idea as to what the alignment would be. So that, that helped. This was not a precise final route, but instead a narrow corridor in which the finished route would remain. And so we were able to identify where there was likely to be tunnelling works, in broad terms, tunnelling works, viaduct structures and earthworks in terms of cuttings and embankments. 
So they set themselves the task of identifying the most appropriate type of investigation all the way from Euston Station in London to Curzon Street in Birmingham. And to a degree, they were dictated to by the euro codes that were in effect. There's a requirement, there's a, a minimum requirement for information in terms of spacing of, of exploratory holes. So that might be a borehole. We have all sorts of different techniques, but um, trial pits, which are very basic, shallow excavations to look at the ground to shallow depths, but also boreholes. There is a whole suite of techniques, modern and traditional, that offer a picture of the subsurface. I mean, I think really the exciting thing, many ways, from a geology point of view, we're actually cutting across the geology, the main formations um, in England. So it's very exciting from that point of view. So as we go up towards Birmingham, we actually bounce through these different geological formations and we have to investigate them accordingly. Our whirlwind tour of the geology along the high-speed two route starts with the wonderful blue clay or London clay of the Euston area. thankfully, because that's a great telling medium and it explains why most of the London underground system is north of Thames because that's where the London clay is at its, its greatest thickness and why it's been difficult to tunnel south of the Thames because you get into the lower formations, the formations underneath the London clay, which are more sandy and gravelly and more difficult to tunnel through. You go into the chalk and then you go into the older formations as you get towards Birmingham. So as you run north, you're actually cutting across the tops of these different ages of, of geological formations. Spacing boreholes along these slices of geology is dictated by the importance of a particular location to the project. For example, a shaft or tunnel portal site needs to be much better understood than a stretch of surface track out in the country. When you get to the viaducts, you might be wanting to look at where the piers are expected to be, but that in itself is a difficult process because those locations can change. They can change in the hands of the contractors further downstream in the design process when they come on stream and do their own design work. So what we really wanted to do was to convey a, a pretty sharp picture as to what the geology was like, um, respecting the spacing requirements, but also having an eye to the fact that in doing that, we were going to end up with something like 12,000 fieldwork locations. 12,000 investigation sites. But there could have been much more. The programme was actually refined down to where the team was more confident in the ground conditions and where they weren't expecting significant design changes. It was also important to parcel the route up in such a way as was logical to the construction that would eventually be done. Each section or zone was then handed over to a different ground investigation contractor. We needed to make sure that that information would join up properly, that there wouldn't be this disjoint when you put one geological interpretation um, or inferred geological cross-section against another. We needed to make sure that the investigation suited the way in which the work would be divided up. And that was actually a very difficult process. With the programme now designed, all that was left was to get approval and the funding so it could move ahead. And I would say, but with great care, that the best Christmas present I've ever had, um, other than the presents my wife, of course, has given me, uh, was the £70 million that was put in my hands by Her Majesty's Treasury on the 17th of December 2014 and told, get on with it. Once Jonathan and the team had completed the preliminary studies and presented bills of quantities to the subsequent ground investigation contractors, the detailed investigations could begin. 
And these ground investigations are not just about geology, especially in the urban environment. One of the most complicated areas of the project is actually around the southern terminus, Euston Station. So I'm Laura Hughes. I'm the country director for Fugro in the UK, and I have particular responsibility for our landside characterisation business. I am a chemical engineer by background and I've had a 20-year career in the energy sector and I'm running our ground investigation business. I'm Dave Thomas, I'm the UK CPT manager, so I look after cone penetration testing in the UK. I've been with Fugro for about 15 years now uh, and early on in my career I used to work on site as a geotechnical engineer and I was actually the site manager for the Euston Station Throat Ground Investigation. Cone penetration testing is one of the fundamental tools in a GI contractor's toolkit. It's this process of pushing a calibrated cone into the ground. And as it's pushed into the ground, the pressure on the tip and the friction on the sleeve of the cone are digitally measured and recorded. And the combination of these two measurements tells us how the soils are going to behave. So either like a sand or a gravel or a clay, it's a really ingenious and simple test. But Euston would require not just this simple test, but the full range of techniques developed by the sector. Very, very complex built environment where HS2 wanted to you know, start the process of really understanding the area in which they were going to have to develop and you know, d design and then construct the new infrastructure associated. The aim of the investigation on of the first part of the Euston Station Throat contract was to be able to build a fully detailed three-dimensional map of all of the services that lie under the ground. This could include gas pipes, electricity lines, water, communications, tube lines. The subterranean environments of cities, and especially in old cities, are just a spaghetti of services and infrastructure. And we started the process by building the base map. So we did a topographic survey of the pavements, the streets, the curbstones, trees, street furniture, to build that base model on which we later built up the service information. So once we'd completed that base model across 44 streets in London, very central London, two and a half thousand square metres of survey, we then started to look beneath the ground and started to investigate what was happening with the services. They started by lifting up surface inspection chambers and sketching what was lying down there and scanning any ducting or cables that lay there to get their depth, diameter and surface orientation. We then plotted all that information onto the, the model we'd already built and then it evolved by adding a ground penetrating radar survey. So we, we carried out a ground penetrating radar survey on the footpaths and in the highway to cross-reference that information we'd already gathered to ensure that we'd obtained the service information using two different techniques to ensure it was as accurate as possible. You'd think that in an area like central London that someone would know where everything was, but actually it's not the case. The information that, that we hold in and those different information banks in the UK, and I think it, you know, in any urban environment that's been developed over centuries, 
um, that information is really imperfect. So you can't pick up a map of any London street and know exactly where the gas mains run, where the electricity lines run, where the fibre optic lines run even, that, that have been quite recently installed. So the, the beginning of the whole of the development story is starting to say, well, actually, we don't have a definitive perfect picture of what's there. So we have to start by sort of peeling back the layers um, to, to form that model so that then designers can, with a very high degree of confidence, know what is in the ground under our feet. We combined all that information together and then could give a confidence level as to how sure we were about where each of the services were. That was the, the main deliverable to High Speed 2, this three-dimensional CAD model uh, of all the services. But we then took it another step further and imported that into the uh, augmented reality world, which enabled our staff to be able to look through a tablet and using the GP, uh, GPS coordinates of the tablet to be able to see what those services were doing under the ground. This was the first time that Dave had seen augmented reality even considered for a ground investigation project. And him being able to point a tablet at the ground and seeing the layers beneath, he described it as... Quite visionary. And I think it's still something that is evolving and emerging. It's, it's certainly not in common use yet as a, as a technique. Another difference between investigations today and those in previous decades is sensitivity towards the environment. And this means something different depending on where the investigation takes place. In Houston, emissions and noise from the rigs and drills are incredibly important. It's also essential not to drill into and therefore potentially contaminate aquifers that supply the capital's water. So on this project, we, we set aquifer protection between each uh, of the permeable layers to ensure that that contamination couldn't permeate down into the into the groundwater. So it involves setting a seal uh, of an impermeable material when you change between permeable lithologies. And we reduce the, the size of the drilling string we're using to set that seal between those lithologies. And, and basically um, means there's a physical barrier between the made ground at the top and the chalk aquifer at the bottom of the hole. We also did some work on this project into uh, evolving the, the kind of drilling fluids that we use to help lubricate the, the core as we drill down to ensure it was the most um, environmentally sensitive and environmentally neutral drilling polymer uh, on the market. Once the ground was understood, work could then begin to divert utilities and clear a number of buildings that would obstruct the future station and the tunnel construction. From the south, we had, there was probably a, just over 30 buildings which needed to be demolished. That included an 18-storey and a 10-storey tower block right outside the front of Houston Station, adjacent to the piazza and the station. This is Danny Allen, a senior project manager for Enabling Works at Houston Station. His works covered the immediate station and then a corridor to its west where demolitions were complicated by buildings being connected to listed buildings. As with the underground surfaces, buildings can also have some surprises. For example, unauthorised basements. Yeah, we had buildings which had 
additional basement extensions which didn't have sort of planning approval or building control approval had uh, been just carried out by the the building owner which went underneath the footpath which um, made life interesting with the utilities that are around those as well. These get removed very quickly because of the dangers around it being built haphazardly and not without proper approvals. Fortunately in that area it was an area that we were clearing quite extensively anyway so we were able to to, to remove it and not have to put anything back straight away. Even when everything has been done to code, London's architecture can be haphazard, which does make dismantling it safely a challenge. We have one building which effectively was extended four times, and, and you know, a significant like six-storey building which is extended four times. And so to, to do that demolition and to work out structurally how you can remove bit, different parts of it, it was, was quite challenging. You know, which bits you can take down when, which bit holds up which other bit. There was another building with a three and a half metre thick first floor slab. The team had two 45 tonne machines sat on the slab, just breaking away at it to remove it. It had 10 layers of 50 mil diameter reinforcement in the top, which was just crazy amounts of reinforcement. That was holding up an 18 storey building um, that was built off that as a transfer slab. That actually then transferred through four, I think, two-metre diameter columns, which then went into a 49-pile pile cap, which was four and a half metres thick, which we've had to break out as well. Incredibly, you, you find buildings that you, you assume the owners have a pretty good idea of what they are, and they've just been lost over the years. This is Richard Craythern, and like Danny, he's a senior project manager for HS2 and was involved with the enabling works around Euston. He was amazed by a building owned by the University of College London. It had only been used by UCL in the last few years and, and converted into uh, an educational uh, you know, facility. Uh, when we, we eventually did all the work on that we, and, and, and traced that back, it had been originally built as um, a tyre storage uh, sort of warehouse. So, of course, the enormous weight of all these tyres, they're massive floors with tons of rebar in. Totally over the top for what was a fairly ordinary looking educational building, but turned out to be the most robustly built classroom the team had ever encountered. Richard had to engage in a lot of utilities diversion work. Whenever you cross a big obstacle like a river or a railway, all the uh, utilities tend to get sort of funnelled through these uh, arteries, if you like. We always sort of call the drawings a bit of a rough guide, really. As soon as you open up the ground, you're there changing everything, all the plans. You find that, you know, things like unidentified utilities are a real pain in the neck because no one will admit to them. You've got to basically find either end of it, which is a lot uh, harder than it sounds. Um, and then, you know, declare it redundant or find the owner. And we've, we've had quite a number of instances of that, more, more than you perhaps uh, you'd think. There's a lot of abandoned stuff that's just unrecorded. This is a problem throughout the capital. Heading further down the line to the west, Carl Ainley is the utilities project manager at Old Oak Common. In his zone, three major UK power network cables have been identified as old, fragile, and at risk of damage from any settlement caused by future tunnelling works. If our ground movement, uh, those contours are say 50 metres apart, 
we like to say we just need to replace 50 meters of, of this 66,000 volt cable. UKPN's answer is no, you have to go back to the nearest joint, and the joints could be 200 meters apart. This extended utility work takes them outside of the limits of the Act of Parliament, which lets them conduct the works. They are in the highway, so the New Road and Street Works Act apply, which is fine, and they are allowed to do these works as a result. But it does sort of cause these other problems that when we're outside of Act limits, it's different engagement to different people, different consents, for example, and how we procure the works. So, yes, what we thought was 50 metres three times has now become 200 metres three times, if not more. Then the actual work needs to be done, and this means trenching the roads for the entire length of the utility. And even though efforts are made to minimise the impact and ensure multiple roads are not affected at the same time, this is an incredibly disruptive activity for travellers. The, the key really is all in the surveys and the design, really. So we, we've got to find a route. There's not always a space within these London roads. They are full of lots of old apparatus, lots of new apparatus. No one really knows what it is. You find the cable, uh, you don't even know if it's dead or alive. You then have to stand the team down. You have to go through a process to spike it to check that it's probably dead. And that might, you might lose some more time in doing that there. So we've got to find a route from end to end. So first of all, we do those ground penetrating radar surveys, lift those manhole covers. We, we do all the checks of the asphalt records and things, and some of those are pretty well out of date or incomplete. So you're pretty well starting from, well, we don't really know what's in this road. Let's find it out bit by bit. So that takes quite a long time to do all those designs and surveys and piecing together a route. Then there are design reviews that need to be signed off by the utility owner and any other stakeholders. For example, many of the utilities are funneled through key arteries such as network rail bridges. So this means that the team needs to go through another major organisation's procedure and design approvals. Then we have to procure the works and that's sort of the straightforward bit through there. But then when it comes to doing the works on the ground, we actually have to sort of duct from one end to the other over that 200 metres distance perhaps pretty well parallel to the existing. And then we have to sort of open up a, a joint bay, which might be the size of a double-decker bus. Some of these big extra high voltage cables, the joint bays are literally 12 meters by three or four meters wide. They are big, which for me relates to a, a footprint of a double-decker bus. When you try to find the footprint of a double-decker bus clear space in the London road, where you can put these joints in, which are pretty well the size of not quite as big as dustbins, but they are pretty big on a cable that is probably about four, five or six inches diameter. All of the ducting and trenching and the reinstatement of the roads can be done by HS2, but the work on the utilities themselves is done by specialist teams from UK Power Networks, for example. This is paid for by the project and often means some very old assets get a much needed replacement. But this is all part of the process of getting the utility companies on board because we're the ones that will be impacting on their assets. No matter how old, how critical they are, we're the one that's coming along. Um, they're quite happy with them doing their thing in the ground. In the ground, if it's old and whatever, that's fine. That's their asset. We're the one that's stating, uh, disrupting that status quo, which is why we have to get their approval for doing these works. Other critical enabling works have been the movement of the Euston taxi rank which was a Tower of Babel problem involving moving it out of the way of other works and then back again. Another sensitive activity was the exhumation project of St James's Garden Cemetery. 
And this was in use as a burial site until the 1850s, when the Burial Acts of London ended non-royal burials within the city limits. Even to that point, there were in excess of 60,000 people put to rest on this one site, and it was right in the path of essential works for the project, as Danny explains. Exhuming that volume of, of, of cemeteries is quite hard. When you exhume remains, you need to shield them from public view. So we took the decision to erect a large encapsulation structure over the whole site, which is a, a massive scaffold sheeted structure, which served to restrict the the public view and enabled us to work well in that environment, but also protected us from the weather. As a mark of respect to the individuals and their descendants, this work had to be done by hand, although smaller machinery is accepted to move what was purely soil. Any handwork is considered hazardous on modern construction sites and risks such as slippery conditions must to be minimised. This is Hyane Tavistay. So I look after only one substation, the main uh, Atlas Road substation. So the, the first challenge that um, HS2 came across is that uh, so we have to launch uh, five TBMs. She has to prepare the London power grid to support the operation of the tunnel boring machines when main tunneling in the area commences. These are incredible mobile factories that chew through the sticky Pleistocene rock that is London clay. Combined with their cranes and supporting equipment, they require an enormous amount of power to operate. 45 megawatts, so that's the equivalent of 45,000 homes. And once operation begins, they only need to have a provisional power of 23 megawatts. They narrowed the viable locations down to three possible positions. That final location is around 20, 30 metres from the Grand Union Canal, so it can have a quite visual impact. So obviously finding that location uh, was the, one of the first steps, and the first challenge. Even so, they had to underpass the Grand Union Canal using horizontal directional drilling. The HDD skirts the Grand Union Canal following the embankment, while a microtunnel will underpass the canal. This is an amazing technique that has advanced by leaps and bounds in recent years. What happens is a rig pushes a cutting head followed by a pipe into a ground. It rotates the head and a lip biases the borehole in the direction needed. Amazing curves and accuracy are possible even with large diameters. In this drive, it runs for 400 meters in length and 20 meters deep in a single shot. The first asset crossing is uh, some network rail uh, bridges and, and tracks on top, and later it curves and goes, uh, follows the um, canal embankment. Uh, so obviously that's another uh, very sensitive asset, the Grand Union Canal. These are all sensitive regions with bores up to half a metre, delivered with millimetre accuracy to get the power where it needs to go. In Enabling Works, everything is about enabling main construction to continue to schedule. 
Some plans are made up to two years in advance to take vital service offline for a week or even a weekend. The critical path needs to be protected at all costs to avoid major delays. So again, due to the uh, criticality of the programme, the TVMs are launching next, next year, the autumn time. So obviously we have very little time to deliver this. Network rail timescales are quite lengthy. So we are working very, very closely with uh, Network Rail to trying to shorten those timescales and have the positions and the consents in time to um, not affect the programme. The finished High Speed 2 project will reshape the nation's travel for generations to come. But most of the benefits are just that, they're still to come, while the disruptions are here and now. Objections to the route have ranged from the environmental, any construction impacts the countryside, to the practical, the coronavirus pandemic reduced the need to travel permanently. Although travel is now back above pre-pandemic levels and the world is hurtling towards a climate catastrophe, these concerns are held and in some cases spill into inappropriate and dangerous responses. We had to, to dig down our own shafts adjacent to their tunnels to, to try and get them out. Um, the risk of collapsing their, their tunnels was very high um, and, and so we we're very, very concerned about that. We had to go carefully and, you know, sort of looking, you know, trying to keep in contact with them at all times. And, and I, I heard that when the, the last protester was, was taken out, the, the tunnel behind her collapsed within hours. And, and so, you know, it was, it was a very serious situation that we were dealing with, a very difficult situation. So when you've got protesters like that, it does make life much, much more difficult. I mean, people have the right to protest, but putting themselves in, in such a harm. Having removed the protesters safely, the team then had to perform ground treatment so the taxi rank could be put in place. A lot of the challenges to enabling works come from the unprecedented complexity of the works delivered to never-before-seen time constraints. The other side of it is that the inherent uncertainty of dealing with the underground. Below the surface is, of course, opaque, and works from previous years and centuries have spotted records at best. Set against this is the ingenuity of High Speed 2 and its supply chain, as well as the array of technologies available to modern construction. Here's Laura Hughes from Fugro again. The transformation that we are seeing in the industry is really the digital revolution and that's still ongoing now so using um, smart ways of transferring data and processing data to speed up that the path from the acquisition uh, to the QA QC to the reporting to the interpretation to the modeling and then passing that on to the client so I think that's one of the ways in which we've really seen our um, our site characterization business transform and, and continue to do so because people want more data, um, but they want it in a digestible way. 
we want it faster and we want to be assured of the quality of it. So, you know, gone are the days of a driller manually filling in a log, which then gets posted on a weekly basis into the office, which then gets, you know, it's it's all um, digitally enabled. So our operators in the fields have uh, have tablets, everything's entered electronically. We work on velocity of a single entry so that that information is then kind of swept up into, into the systems. Jonathan Gammon says that... This is actually particularly important. I think in the grand scheme of things, the introduction of BIM was actually a godsend for us working in the ground because it did mean we had somewhere to put our data. I was determined that we would not present the designers with a huge number of volumes of ground investigation documents because that's what it would have amounted to. I mean, unbelievable volume. If you look at the volume of paperwork that's required to submit the hybrid bill and then and, and the environmental statement itself, for goodness sake, because I've seen photographs of what that looked like when it was printed, it's like, wow. Um, I didn't want that to be the case. All the GI information, fieldwork and laboratory testing was stored electronically and therefore easily accessed for design purposes. And if in some future decade or century someone comes to build upon the foundations that High Speed 2 lays now, records will be complete, so their job will be easier. And there was one final outcome to really excite the geologists out there. In the ground investigation, we identified the geological formation, which we then called the rice lip bed. So we've actually added to the geological map as a result of the HS2 ground investigation. To a geologist, this is the real deal. A new geological stratum 33 metres below the surface that was formed in the Paleocene period some 56 million years ago. It was probably created by densely wooden marshland bordering a subtropical sea. What more could you ask for from the largest ground investigation programme in British history? Innovation will be an increasingly important component of the HS2 story as it unfolds. With the ground cleared and secured for development, main construction on High Speed 2 can begin. Construction of the earthworks, depots, maintenance facilities, bridges, tunnels and viaducts, and the biggest station building program since the Victorian age. And the future of transportation in Britain. next time on how to build a railway. Biodiversity is declining faster at the moment than at any time in human history and particularly in the UK we've got 40% of species in decline. This is an environmental project it just happens to have a railway running through the middle of it. We've got over 100 plots of ecological mitigation now across the routes. We're going to be planting up to 7 million trees. We planted about 130 hectares of new woodland, over 300,000 trees. We want to leave the natural environment in a better state than what we inherited, a measurably better state. We've got an aspiration at HS2 now to deliver biodiversity net gains. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Jonathan Gammon, Laura Hughes, Danny Allen, Hyone Teverstay, Carl Ainley, Dave Thomas and Richard Crathern. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk. 
or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.